0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout referenced during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website.
1: All right. Our speaker this evening is a priest in the Melkite Catholic Church of America and pastor of St. Elias Melkite Parish in Los Gatos, California. Father Sebastian Carnazzo received his Master's Degree in Theology with a concentration in Sacred Scripture from the Graduate School of Christendom College and went on to receive his PhD in Biblical Studies at the Catholic University of America. He joined the Faculty of St. Patrick's Seminary in the fall of 2015 as a full-time lecturer in Sacred Scripture and Biblical Languages. Among other teaching engagements and volunteer activities, he's also an adjunct lecturer and Sacred Scripture for the Graduate School of Christendom College, Academic Director for the Diaconate Program in the Roman Catholic Diocese of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and a Professor for Pontifex University, one of the generous sponsors of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Father Sebastian lives happily with his wife and six children in Prunedale, California. We welcome back to the Institute, Father Sebastian Carnazzo.
2: Welcome, everyone. We are looking at the Epistle to the Philippians, the Epistle to the Philippians of St. Paul. Hopefully, most of you received the handout. Uh, if you didn't, you can print it off at another time. Um, the, uh, everything that you need to know, I will tell you. Well, anything that you need to know about this lecture, I will tell you. Uh, but the, um, uh, the notes are there in case I'm speaking a little too quickly for you. There's some extra references and things there. Okay, so if you want to turn there, you can uh, follow along with this introductory information. First of all, the Epistle to the Hebrews is one of the captivity epistles. One of the captivity epistles. That means St. Paul wrote it while he was in prison. It's important to know, as we've talked about in other lectures with the ICC, as the church tells us, who is the author who is the intended audience, and what was the purpose of writing. Now we know who St. Paul is, but now we need to know that St. Paul is not wandering around in, in uh, Asia Minor at this moment. He's in prison. And so that's important information for the who is the author part. It's Paul in prison, okay, not Paul heading off to Corinth, or Paul traveling on his second journey, or Paul going up to Jerusalem. This is Paul in prison, okay? Uh, I have in in the notes there for you a little summary of the captivity. After the latter half of his third journey, so halfway into his third journey, Paul then turns around, reverses course, and starts heading home from Corinth. Paul eventually made his way back to Jerusalem where he was soon imprisoned and brought to Caesarea. After two years of interrogations by two procurators, Felix and Festus, Paul was eventually sent to Rome having appealed to Caesar as a Roman citizen. During this first captivity, Paul wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, commonly known as the captivity letters or epistles. So, first of all, we understand that when we're reading this epistle, we're not reading just a general epistle of Paul. Each of these epistles were uh, written at different times in his life to different communities, sometimes different individuals. And so we have to understand who is the author, What was his life? This is early Paul, late Paul, free Paul, imprisoned Paul, right? And then who was the audience? At what time? This is the first or the second thing he's written to them. And then what was the purpose of writing? Okay. So the letter to the Philippians. The letter is written to the Christian community in Philippi, a city of Macedonia named after Philip of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great, who established a fortified camp there in 360 B.C. This city was overrun by the Romans in 168, and in 42 B.C. Augustus established it as a Roman colony, which granted to its citizens Italian citizenship. The Roman Empire did this with any major wealthy city, uh, the um, influential city, because if they could make sure that a wealthy leading city was going to remain in communion with them and not rebel, then it was much more likely that the surrounding cities of less power and influence would then go along with it. So major cities, Corinth, Philippi, and other places, they would give these major leading wealthy influential cities, they would give them Roman citizenship. And then that granted their citizens equal citizenship with, those of the Italian peninsula, which, of course, made them much more likely to remain uh, as good, loyal servants of the Roman Empire and to keep uh, paying their taxes and make sure all the surrounding cities paid their taxes. The city was thoroughly Gentile with a large population of Romans. The Jewish community appears to have been relatively small. And that's without a synagogue, the most likely reason for their gathering at the river to pray. Remember in Acts, we hear about Paul going to Philippi. And in fact, here is in Philippi where Paul first pulls out his citizenship ID card. Remember, he's in prison and they're singing, and the jailer, after the earthquake, is about to kill himself. And Paul ends up baptizing the jailer and his whole family, his household, and then eventually. The jailer lets them know that, hey, they, they, the governor says, you can you can leave freely the next morning. Paul says, excuse me, I have an identification card here. I am a Roman citizen, and I have been beaten. I have been mistreated. Without trial, they can kind of escort us out uh, on their own. So they, he lets them come, and they bring him out of the prison with lots of apology, right? That makes sure next time Paul goes to Philippi, they know to watch out for this guy, be a little more careful. Paul established the uh, Christian community in Philippi during his second missionary journey, along with Silas, Timothy, and Luke. We just talked about that. And he visited it during his third journey, possibly twice. When the Philippians heard about Paul's Roman imprisonment, they sent Epaphroditus with gifts to tend to his needs. Though Epaphroditus became ill during his Roman stay, he eventually recovered and became the courier for Paul's letter to the Philippians to thank the Philippians first and foremost for their kindness. Authorship. Pauline authorship of the letter is attested by the earliest canonical lists and supported by allusions in the writings by early witnesses, such as St. Polycarp in his letter to the Philippians, who wrote, Paul, When living among you, clearly and steadfastly taught the word of truth to you, uh, to his contemporaries. And when he was absent, he wrote to you letters. Notice the plural there. We'll talk about that later. By reading these attentively, you will be able to strengthen yourselves in the faith that has been given to you. So did Paul write more than one letter to the Philippians? It's possible. He also wrote letters to the Thessalonians. And Paul Often encouraged his letters to be handed around, passed, copied in the region. So it could be that this is a reference to the letter to the Philippians and the two letters to the Thessalonians, or it could be a reference to a letter to the Philippians that we no longer have. It's possible as well. We don't know. Structure. As with other captivity letters, Philippians has a simple and clear structure, prologue, teachings, plans. Christian life, and then an epilogue. The authorship of the epistle is not something that would probably be an issue for you, but you may have heard on occasion someone referring to the letter to the Philippians as a Deutero-Pauline epistle. That is an idea that developed uh, in post-Enlightenment Germany, German praiseship, um, where... They find in the New Testament things that are contrary to the beliefs in Protestant Germany at the time, and therefore then label these things as uh, deuterocanonical. So it's a way to lower their status of importance. And so there uh, was a movement in biblical studies for a very long time, unfortunately, to label this along with some other epistles that just weren't Lutheran enough uh, to, uh, to be deuteropauline. This we talked about in our introduction to the New Testament, and uh, so we don't need to spend too much time on it here, but just a note on that. The reason, for the argument for uh is often, at least one of the arguments, is that the, the language is different from the other epistles that some would assume are authentically Pauline. Well, the reason why you have different style of Greek in the epistles of Paul is because Paul, as we know, used secretaries. When Paul was waxing eloquently in either Aramaic or Greek, there was somebody writing these things down for him. In fact, the letter to the Romans we even get the name of his secretary, Tertius. So, this the the epistles of Paul are going to vary in their uh, their Greek. Uh, their Greek uh, vocabulary and style due to the knowledge of Greek of the secretary. Especially if Paul is speaking in Aramaic and it's being translated into Greek by the secretary. More on that later if there is need. All right, now let's turn to the epistle. How are you going to find the letter of the Philippians? I know you're going to say, well, I'll just turn to the tab. Well, it's okay to have tabs in your Bible, but listen, you don't need them, okay? For one, if you have tabs in your Bible, that means you need to read your Bible more often. And two, I if you don't have tabs yet, I recommend don't put them in because they will eventually tear your pages of your Bible. And after you've met, spent years and years and years writing notes in your Bible and memorizing where things are and highlighting it and making it your own personal book, the last thing on earth is you want pages to be starting to tear uh, on in your uh, in your holy book so if you do have tabs well just be careful with them if you don't have them yet i recommend not putting them there so how do you find the epistle without tabs well first of all you know it's in the new testament the letters of the philippians is in the new testament right i know you're all thinking of course it is i can't tell you how many times i said turn with me to the epistle to the hebrews and someone flips to the old testament so The epistle to the Philippians is in the New Testament, obviously. It's going to be after the Gospels and Acts. There we come then to the Pauline epistles. The Pauline epistles are arranged, as we talked about in the introduction to the New Testament, are arranged into groupings. You have two parts. First of all, the first section of the Pauline epistles are his community letters. The second part of the Pauline Epistles are his personal letters. Now, the community letters are listed in your Bible from longest to shortest. His personal letters are listed then from longest to shortest. Why is this? I don't know. I think I would have listed them the other way around, but the... Early church is the source of this order. The early church manuscripts have the Pauline Epistles in this order, and so that's how they appear in your Bible, in your English text. And that order is determined by the lectionary cycle of the early church. And so when they set out to read the Pauline Epistles, they started with Romans and then worked their way down. I would guess the reasoning would be that the epistle to the Romans, because it was not one of Paul's communities, Paul did not catechize them, it ends up being the most detailed of all of his epistles. He has to explain every single thing he wants to say in great detail. One verse in the letter of the Galatians about Abraham is a whole chapter in Romans. Well, the Galatians he had catechized over and over again. And so, when you're reading Galatians, you're look you're you're not getting the whole conversation. There's a mass amount of assumed information on uh, by Paul on the part of the Galatian community. Whereas the 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 letter to the Romans is written to a community that does not know Paul at all. He's never taught them anything. So every single thing he has to say, he then has to explain in great detail why he says it. And so it makes it one of the most valuable of the Pauline epistles because you and I are not first century Pauline Christians. And so when you read Paul's letter to the Romans, what you get is the long form with great explanation of all the great Pauline ideas that are just briefly mentioned in his other letters to Pauline communities that he assumes they know what he's talking about. Okay. So, That might be the reason for the ordering. Whatever the case may be, you have your community letters, which is what we're looking at right now, from longest to shortest. You look first, you see Romans, and then 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Galatians. That's a handy grouping. Paul was very eloquent on his third trip. On his third uh, uh, trip into Asia Minor and Greece, he wrote those epistles. They end up being his longest as well. Then you come to what's called the... Captivity epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, okay, and then Philemon, of course, as well. After that, you come to his personal letters. I tell you this so that when you want to find a letter of Paul, you got to think first of all, what kind of letter is it? And then you can open up your New Testament and you you might flip a page or two, but you can find it fairly quickly with some practice. Right, with some practice, which means you got to open up your Bible and read. How do you get that practice? The church presents for you today the lectionary cycle. It couldn't get easier. Right? You hear about all these great you know, schema of, uh, of how to read through the Bible in one year or in three years or in whatever. The church has given it to you in the lectionary cycle. Just read the daily readings each day, and you'll read through the whole Bible in three years, for the most part. Okay, so the letter to the Philippians, hopefully by now you have found it after the Ephesians there. You should have open also your notes and maybe a highlighter or a pen. As we're moving quickly through the text of the Bible, I don't recommend necessarily highlighting and underlining uh everything that i say as you go through the text you might want to do that later on you want to make sure you're very careful in your highlight and underline your bible because once you do it there it is Um, but you can take notes of course you can scribble notes all you want on your piece of paper as well and then maybe later on which i recommend you do is go back and re-examine this information and then put notes in your bible carefully that are related to what we Discuss so hopefully later on you'll have a bible your letter later the philippians will have all sorts of colors in it and things like that okay in lines it may look like when i'm talking about philippians or other parts of the bible wow he's kind of got this whole thing memorized no i've got all my notes right here i barely passed high school okay all right so if i can do it you can do it put your notes in your bible the letter of paul to the philippians When did he write this? So you can maybe make a few notes, if you like, in your Bible right there. Under the title, you could put a captivity epistle to remind you. And then you could put uh, the dates, 61 to 63, somewhere in there, or early 60s. This is when he was writing this. The the dates will be important in a second, as we'll see. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Now, if you read Paul's epistles, you know that that is not his normal way of introducing himself. The letter to the Philippians is probably the nicest, not probably, it is the nicest letter of Paul. Paul is so happy when he's writing this. He loves the Philippians and they love him. This is the one community, very rare for Paul, that did not give him any trouble. Every time he visited them, they handed over all, any any support they could for him and whatever else needed, as you see they're going to do as we hear about in the epistle. He had no problems with them whatsoever. And so this is for sure the happiest of the Pauline epistles. And you'll see why he's writing. What's the purpose? Not to address any heresies. He hasn't heard of anyone doubting his apostleship, right? Look at an example. Look at the difference in the other epistles, for example, when you come to uh, the letter to the Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, has to, right, pull out the sidearm and lay it on the table right in front of him, let him know he's got authority, right? Uh, Look at the letter of the Galatians. I love this one. Look at Galatians just before that. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ. Mm. There's some issues going on in that community, right, about his authority. And so here, look at Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see right off the bat, Paul is not writing this letter to correct anything, any problems in the of any you know, major consequence. Okay, so the first note we want to look at there is the bishops and deacons. I feel left out. What
1: about the priests?
2: Hmm. Maybe Paul had trouble with the priests there. No, he didn't have any trouble with the priests because there weren't any in Philippi. In fact, as far as we can see, there weren't anywhere any in the in, anywhere in the church at this time. When you look at the letter to the Philippians, this line here, and you compare it to other places in the New Testament, you find this same pattern, a reference to the bishops and deacons of a community. But no mention about the priests. Compare this, for example, flip over to Paul's personal letters, and you come to his letter to Timothy, his first letter to Timothy. Look what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is sure: if anyone presents himself to the office of bishop, right, offers himself to be consecrated as a bishop. He desires a noble task. Now, let me tell you what a bishop ought to be like before you lay your hands on him, Timothy. Timothy. Okay, now, then look at verse 8. Now, the deacons, let me tell you about them. About the priests. Same thing in Titus. Look at, flip over in Paul's personal letters now, after his second letter to Timothy, look at Titus. The same thing here. He talks about the the um, and this is in uh, Titus chapter one, chapter one uh, verse. Uh, let's see verse six. If anyone is blameless, his husband or his wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of being profligate or insubordinate, for a bishop as God's steward must be blameless. Now, if we look at the early apostolic literature. I give you in the notes, by the way, the other places where you get these references to bishops and deacons. If you look at the early apostolic literature, what you find is, early on, of course, we know there were apostles. Again, we address this in the introduction to New Testament course, so this is a review for many of you. Early on, of course, there were the apostles, the ones that Jesus sent out, apostolos, one who is sent away. Okay, those. Apostles continued to be apostles, sent. They never stopped. They came to a location, they established a church, and then they moved on. This is what we see Paul doing, for example, on his journeys. In Acts chapter fourteen. In Acts chapter fourteen, Paul doesn't just come to a city, preach the gospel, baptize a bunch of people and leave. He leaves them fully equipped sacramentally. In Acts chapter 14, at the end of his first journey, he does not just abandon those cities, but he turns around and retraces his steps and goes to each one of those cities where he'd established the churches and then got chased out of. He now goes quietly back to each one of these churches on that very same journey. And it says in Acts chapter 14, Verse 22 and 23, 23 specifically, he appointed elders, appointed presbytery. He appointed, as I mentioned in the Introduction to the Testament, of uh, course, clergy would be a good translation there at that stage. The word there, presbytery, you've heard of presby- presbyterate, so you think, wait a minute, there it is. Not yet, not in the way you're thinking. Episcopate presbyterate and diaconate, the way that you're thinking is a little later. We're going to talk about that later. Here the word presbytery in Greek is being used to refer to in general the clergy of a community, as we know it by looking at other examples, the deacons and the bishops. So he appoints bishops and deacons. The word appoint, by the way, there is not a point like we use in modern English. It's a bad translation, I think. The Greek word there is to stretch out the hand. Which is the very same word that's still used as the very name of an ordination in the Greek church. In the Melkite church, when my brother and I were ordained, the the, uh, the Greek word there the is the very word is the word for ordination, the laying on of the hand. <coughs> okay, so we can see that now. What did they appoint in each one of these places? Well, they appointed bishops for sure. What's a bishop? An episkopos where we get the word bishop from, right? Chop off the E on the front, and you interchange your B and P. and Bishop. Overseer, literally in the English, episkopos, episkopos an overseer. They are one who remains overseeing the community. They were not supposed to leave. The bishop stays there. The apostle moves on to the next city. Now, who was there to help the apostle in the establishing of a church or the bishop in the maintenance of that church? Very early on, we see the apostles create something new. They create what's called the diaconate. We see this in Acts 6, as we talked about in the Introduction to New Testament course. The apostles created the diaconate there's no indication anywhere in jesus' teachings that he told them at some stage you're going to have to create the diaconate no they discerned the need laid their hands upon these men and ordained them to a participation in their role the apostles were to go and establish churches obviously if you're going to establish something you must maintain it and so they the apostles were given a particip uh, they gave a participation participation they had in what Jesus had given them, the great apostle. Jesus gave his his authority and power to the apostles, and the apostles then gave and shared some of that with these men that we call the deacons, who now take on the role, not that the apostles no longer have to worry about, who gets bread and things like that, but they're going to share the burden. The deacons are going to take care of this job. They're directed for that, and the apostles give them that job so that the apostles can go on and work on the diaconia, the ministry of the word. As we read the New Testament, we find that what they're doing in each one of these places is establishing a church. They're baptizing. They're ordaining a bishop or two or many. And then they also, as we see, have deacons in each one of these places created by the apostles who established the church or by the bishops as there is need. Okay. Now, having said that, you say, okay, well, what about the priests? Well, don't worry. I'm worried about that, too. So that's why we're going to address it. All right. So where did, where did the priests come from? When we read the earliest apostolic literature, for example, the letter of Clement to the Corinthians, the letter of Clement to the Corinthians, we see exactly what we see here in the New Testament. Bishops and deacons. If you just want to make a note for yourself there in your... Um, in your I, give it to you. I didn't give any of the notes. So you can make a little addition to your notes there. I say, see also the letters of Ignatius of Antioch. You could put uh, Clement of Rome, writing to the Corinthians. Clement to the Corinthians mentions only bishops and deacons. Okay, mentions only the bishops and the deacons. And uh, this is uh, in paragraph 40. Let's see, paragraph 40. Forty, uh, four. Yeah. Okay. And your numbering might be different depending on which, um, oh, also in 42. So you get in 42 and in 44 references, uh, references to the bishops and the, uh, the diaconate 42 specifically. Sorry about that. 42. My eyes are going here to the bishops and the deacons. He says, and again he says to the bishops and the deacons. That's Clement's letter to the Corinthians. You get that also in the Didache, in the Didache, which was written right around the same time as the New Testament, no later than one twenty. The Didache, the Didache mentions bishops and deacons. This is in the Didache paragraph fifteen. Paragraph 15, you must choose for yourselves bishops and deacons who are worthy of the Lord. Now, what does it mean, choose? You might think, really? It sounds kind of congregationalist there. Well, no, you can see this is exactly what happened in Acts 6. When there is a problem, the bishops tell the community, a present for us, offer to us, some men who may we may appoint to this duty. The community presents to the apostles the individuals, and then the apostles ordain them. Okay, you can see that in Acts 6. All right, so having said that, you say, Well, good, where are the priests? Well, that's the earliest apostolic literature outside the New Testament. What about the letters of Ignatius of Antioch? Ignatius of Antioch wrote seven letters around 110, around A.D. 110. And as you read these letters over and over and over again, he refers to the bishops, the priests, and the deacons. I'll give you an example. This is his letter to the, uh, to the Magnesians. Uh, paragraph six, he says, let the bishop preside in the place of God and his presbytery, his priests, in the place of the apostolic conclave. And let my special friends, the deacons, be entrusted with the service of Jesus Christ. As you read through his epistles, you hear that kind of language over and over and over again. The bishops, the priests, and the deacons. So what happened? Well, obviously, somewhere right around the turn of the century, somewhere around, could be as early as 70 or 80 in some places, uh, in, um, uh, maybe as late as 100 in others, somewhere in the latter part of that first century, the apostles, the bishops, created another order like they did the diaconate and those we call the priests. Why did they do it? Well, as we see their function in the early church, it seems to have to do with a sudden burst of growth. If you want to date that, you could maybe date it to right around 96, 97. Roman persecution of Christians came to a complete halt around 96. And for a few years... There was no persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. The church would have burst with growth at that moment. And what happens is the bishops who are governing major churches in the major cities suddenly need an incredible amount of help. Again, it seems to indicate a, a sudden moment of incredible growth of in the church. There are little churches cropping up all over the place in the outlying villages around major cities where the church was. And so the bishop sends out his representative. He lays his hands upon an individual, probably a deacon or something, and creates what's called the presbyterate. This is the term that gets used for them at this point. The priests, they are the bishop's representative, his stand-in at a mission church, basically and you still have that structure today the bishop is the uh, is the is the apo- the apostle among us he is the overseer in the main city and then geographically the smaller cities outside of the main city is where the smaller churches are and the bishop is always trying to found and start new churches in these and as the church grows and grows and grows and grows eventually a diocese may split and another major city is where the bishop will be, and out the outlying villages or, or towns is where the, the parishes are. This is why historically also, the uh, in your churches, there's supposed to always be a throne that no one ever sits on except for the bishop. You, you may remember, those of you who are a little older than I am, uh, may remember... In some of the older churches, you may have remembered seeing this, where there was a chair that was often off to the side, and no one ever sat in that chair except for the bishop when he came. It was called the bishop's throne. Today, when the bishop comes for a visit, either the priest gives up his seat or they set a special chair there for the bishop. But historically, the chair always remained visibly to the people when the bishop was not there as a constant reminder to the, bishop, uh, to the people and to the priest that this is the bishop's church, his mission church. All right, so bishops and deacons. Boy, that's a lot on that verse. Are we going to get moving here? Of course we are. However, this is an important issue. Most people today, most Catholics are interested in Bible study, uh, at least get interested in it because of apologetics. They start out that way. And then they start diving in and say, wow, this is neat stuff. Well, this is one of those places where you can sometimes have an issue, an apologetic issue, because you just have bishops and deacons, no priest mentioned here. You will find in Protestant churches, Protestant, many pro- modern Protestant churches, you'll find the recreation of a church hierarchy based upon their reading of the Bible. So they come to Sunday Philippians. Well, they have bishops and deacons there, so you'll come to a Protestant church, and now all of a sudden you'll find, oh yeah, the bishop so-and-so is going to visit, and the deacons are running the church, right? Who are these guys? Well, they've got these titles, they've created these titles to look like what they're reading in the Bible, but they have no understanding historically of the development of these things. And if someone ever questioned the authority of the church to create the presbyterate, Well, then, of course, they'd also be questioning the authority of the apostles to create the diaconate as well. Verse 2, the grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. The Pauline epistles usually have, after this typical greeting of some sort, I, Paul, with so-and-so, greet you, the church of, fill in the blank, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he calls, he says, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't he believe that Jesus is God? This is an early Trinitarian, a way to speak in Trinitarian language before we've got the councils hammering all this stuff out. Paul refers to the father as god and jesus the son as the lord so it's kind of a downgrade isn't it i mean shouldn't he refer to jesus as god as well well he is if you understand that the word lord in jewish greek right which is what the new testament is in the septuagint greek of the old testament lord kyrios is a circumlocution, another way of saying the divine name. Rather than say the divine name Yahweh in the Old Testament, when the translators, the Jewish translators, from Hebrew into Greek, preparing text for the Greek-speaking synagogues, what we call the Septuagint, when they wrote the divine name instead of actually putting it into greek what they put in there was the way that they referred to the divine name at the time as that is through circumlocutions the jews continued to do that to refer instead of saying the divine name lest they profane it breaking the commandment they avoid saying the divine name unless they must say it and so rather than just say it all the time they would say something else so the lord or um uh so in, greek, in hebrew or aramaic uh Adonai, or you might hear uh, Hashem, the name, things like that. So when he refers to God the Father, he uses the word Theos in Greek, God, for the Father, and then for Jesus, he uses the word Lord, Kyrios, which is a Jewish way to talk about the name of God, which is going to be very important, of course, in chapter 2 of this epistle. This will come up again. I point that out to you because sometimes in apologetics, Jehovah's Witnesses knocking at your door will use something like this to confuse you, but you can show them that verse along with Philippians chapter 2 proves the very point that I just made for you. Chapter 1, verse 3. I thank God, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Thankful for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Look at this. He's very happy with these people. So what does he mean, His, their partnership in the gospel? Again, the Philippians were very generous with Paul. They were started out as a small Jewish community, church. Remember when Paul was in Philippi, there was no synagogue. He used to go into a city, find the local Jewish neighborhood, locate the synagogue if there was one, wait till the Sabbath. Then he'd walk in with the rest of them, sit there and wait. And then, when they asked if he had anything to say, he had said, Absolutely, I do. And he'd stand up and he'd preach the gospel until they kicked him out of the place. Well, when he came to Philippi, you remember there was no synagogue, which means that the Jewish community was very small there. And so, he found a little place down by the river where he thought they might be praying. The Jews would want to get away from the, the city and the noise to pray. And so, he finds them down there. Remember Lydia, the seller of purple goods and all that. So uh, the but this community being small, this very the, the church being founded by us out of a small Jewish community, uh, was very generous with Paul. Very generous with Paul whenever he passed through. In fact, you can make a note for yourself there to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul is actually in Philippi when he writes 2 Corinthians, or as far as we can discern, he's there. And he writes to the Corinthians, which were a very wealthy church. He says to the Corinthians, I encourage you before I arrive, I'll be there in a couple weeks, to start storing up goods each Sunday, the first day of the week as you gather, so that when I come, you might not have to gather it up all at once. And then he goes on he goes on to encourage them. He says, "Look, Macedonia has been very generous beyond their means. And if I come to Corinth with Macedonian disciples with me, and they come to Corinth and they see that you're not as generous as the Macedonians have been, it's going to embarrass me as well as you." So he makes a big point to the Corinthians about the generosity of the Philippians. Primarily the, Macedon- the, the, uh, the, uh, the Philippians, those of Macedonia, as you can see there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You can read that on your own uh, for a little expansion of what he means there. Now, he says not only from the beginning, but until now. What do you mean until now? Remember, they've sent Epiphroditus to give him gifts and care for Paul in prison. And I am sure that he, um, the Gospel of the First Day, and I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel thus about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you, all with the the affection of Christ Jesus. So they've been supporting him while he was imprisoned, and during his defense, he had to stand before Caesar and defend himself. And so his proclamation of the gospel in this situation is being supported, he says, by the Philippians. Why? Because they sent this guy with some some presents to support him. Verse 8, For God is my witness to how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruits of righteousness, which come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, what you want to do there, if you want to use translate Pauline language into modern English theological language, you would put the word God there, you put Father. You'll see how this works in a second. So, through Jesus Christ to the glory of the Father. Right, you might say, oh, that sounds a little, that makes a little more sense. So the uh the glory and the day of the of Christ, the day of Christ, what is gonna happen on the day of Christ? Hmm? What's gonna happen on the day of Christ? We'll come to that in a second. Verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that what has happened to me, my imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. So you'll hear in the captivity epistles, Paul helping these communities understand that this is the will of God and that the events that are taking place, Paul's imprisonment, are according to the will of God and Paul's will, and everything is just fine. Don't worry. You get a sense in his epistles to the Ephesians, the Colossians, the Philippians, uh, that, not the Philippians in this case, but that the Colossians, Ephesians are a little embarrassed uh, by Paul's imprisonment. Maybe we, you know, hooked our cart to the wrong horse on that one. You know, here he is, he's in prison now. Maybe God's, you know, not really looking out for him. Maybe Paul's not really acting according to God's will, and so maybe this is a chastisement, a punishment upon him for or maybe not doing things right. So Paul has to explain to him that, no, no, this is the will of God. This is, I'm doing this in accord with God's will. This is all part of his plan. You remember when you read in Acts, that God says to, Jesus appears to Paul in prison in Acts, and says to him, he's in Caesarea, in prison, in Caesarea, still back in Palestine. He says, I want you to go to Rome and preach the gospel there as you have here in Caesarea and other places. Hmm. How's he going to get there? He's in prison. He's in a Roman prison. He's a Roman citizen. So what does Paul do at the next time, the next trial in Caesarea? He says, I appeal to Caesar. What? We were going to let you go. Why would you want to do that? Now what are we going to do? I don't know. What should we do with the guy? He appealed to Caesar. I want to let him go. I was going to let him go too. Mm. All right. You appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. Foolish man. (laughs) Well, so now Paul gets a free ride on a Roman boat guarded by Roman soldiers and cared for as a Roman citizen. Ingenious, right? When he gets to Rome, He lives like a king. He's a prisoner. But he's a Roman citizen and he's been accused. There's nothing, there are no Roman laws that anyone has accused him of having broken. So they don't know what to do with the guy. So he lives in a he's under house arrest. All right. So then he says, look, don't worry about me. I want you to know, brother, it's not so bad here, right? What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, right, the Roman Guard, the, the local you know, official army, and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. So they hear, what's this guy in prison for? Seems like a nice guy. Doesn't seem like a criminal. He's in prison for, he believes that some guy, me, is, is some guy of Jesus is the Christ. What's the Christ? I don't know. Go ask him. Oh, okay. So they would ask him, and he's, he's starting to convert these guys. And most of the brethren, that's the Christians in Rome, have been made confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment, right? Oh, you're a Christian? Paul's a Christian huh right so as paul is respected by the praetorian guard so the local christians are starting to be respected remember the roman empire is not yet actively persecuting christians they don't even know what they are they're not on the radar screen yet and he says and are uh, and they are much more bold to speak the word of god without fear pretty good some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, ah. but others out of goodwill. Okay, so what's he talking about there? If you read all the Pauline epistles, you'll find that there are some individuals who caused Paul a lot of trouble. There were the dualists in, in Corinth, as we talked about in our New Testament study. He could be referring to them. But it doesn't, there's no reference in this epistle to the dualists. There are some clear teachings about the resurrection. So you might get a hint of it there, but it doesn't seem like he's trying to convince anybody of anything there. But he does specifically address the Judaizer heresy. And those are some individuals that he's often referred to as antagonists and rivals and troublemakers of his. We'll see that in chapter four. So Uh, or chapter 3. So we'll get to that in a second. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of partisanship, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So, you can imagine how individuals who were opposing Paul, the Judaizers, for example, might use Paul's imprisonment, imprisonment to say, Oh, look, see, God's punishing him for not telling you to circumcise your kids. God's punishing him for not telling you to keep kosher. What then? Eh, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes. I shall rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, that's something you hear three times in Job. Three times in Job. Now, if you've read the book of Job, you know Job is a man who was perfectly righteous, as he's going to say here, perfectly righteous but went through some trials and tribulations. But he came out on the other end even better off, right? You know, the last chapter of the book of Job. And so Paul knows the book of Job. And he knows that in his sufferings, his consolation is the story of Job. He might be thinking, did I do something wrong? Maybe I shouldn't have appealed to Caesar. Maybe I should have gone here another way, or you know, who knows what's going through his head. But either way, he knows his consolation is that he has done nothing wrong. He is simply preaching the gospel, and therefore, his life is like the life of Job, not only in the trials and tribulations, but also the end of the story. Right? I often tell people if they're suffering. One well, of the first things you should read is the book of Job. The first thing you should read is the book of Job. People often conclude because I have, you know, I have cancer or I'm, or something horrible has happened in my life or someone, uh, a friend or a family member died. Is God punishing me for something I did? All right. Go read the book of Job maybe something that's gone wrong in your life is the result of you know something you did maybe you smoked 15 packs of cigarettes a day and now you have lung cancer okay there's a result there there's obviously but but god is not punishing you for something you did god is not punishing you for something you did this is the result of an action or sometimes the result of something else think of the poor man born blind and the apostles say who sinned this man or his parents someone must have done something wrong here and jesus says Neither, right, neither, but that the glory of God might be manifest in him, that you might believe, having seen what I do with him, right? So the same thing here, it's a finite evil, it's a finite, I use evil in the Hebrew sense there, a finite discomfort for an infinite, an infinite pleasure, an infinite glory, right? Paul uses that kind of analogy in other places. We talked about in our reading of Romans in our last study. So he then says in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I shall not at all be put to shame, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body in my body underline the word body there whether by life or by death right the way Christ Paul lives and the way Paul dies Christ will be honored in his body he says he says for to me to live is Christ right he lives as part of the body of Christ and yet he says he says to die is gain what What does he mean by that? Well, look what he says. If it is to be life in the flesh, eh, that means fruitful labor for me, right? I can come and visit you guys again and write an epistle for you. Yet, which I shall choose I cannot tell, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh, in the body, is more necessary on your account. So, convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. There's a hint where Paul's going to go and what's going to be his fourth journey. You know, Paul's going to be released from prison, as you can see. He already knows it's going to happen. The Roman Empire doesn't know what to do to him, right? Next. Caesar, uh, before this guy comes up, um, his name's uh, uh, Pavos, and he's um, from Tarsus. He's a Roman citizen. Yeah, okay, what do you do? We don't know. He's, he's, he believes in some guy from Nazareth is the Christ. What's that mean? Uh, yeah, Christos, anointed. It's, it's Greek. So, wh- wh- what? I don't know. We have no idea what to do with him. Okay. Next, who are you? I'm Paul. I stand. A prisoner before you, Caesar, as a loyal citizen of this empire, because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. He really believes in the resurrection? He says so. Hmm. Give him a glass of water, maybe some ice, a little aspirin. Okay, next, right? What what are they going to do with him? Now, the next time Paul's in prison in Rome, under Nero, he's going to be martyred, right? Very different in that situation. Very different then. But here Paul is convinced he's going to come see them again. You can make a little note for yourself there in verse 26, a little paragraph break. Put maybe point, make a little arrow. Future fourth journey. He's going to write his letters of his fourth journey, first and second Timothy and Titus from Macedonia. And he doesn't say it, but I'd bet he's in Philippi. Okay? That's a wonderful spot to take our break. And then we'll come back and talk about what does this mean to leave the body and what else is
1: Paul thinking is going to happen next. Great. Thank you, Father, very much. That was good. Good introduction so far.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. Or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.